What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 47 of the Hashishin, presented by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we head back to the East Coast to speak with Tucker of Mega Raw Melts based out of Maine. He talks to us about his obsession with cannabis from an early age in New Jersey to spending almost the last two decades in Maine, primarily motivated by the cultivation of cannabis. We also get to hear about his journeys to Canada and Amsterdam in the early 2000s and how those influence his experiences moving forward and much more. So definitely stay tuned for it. This is for all our listeners in Colorado and beyond. Our new live event, the Coffee and Donuts to Go Tour, will be making a stop in Denver, Colorado on February 11th and 12th. We'll be joined by some awesome guests, including Nika T, Sam of Mile High Melts, Julian of Dap Logic, The Real Cannabis Chris, and many more. So come hang with us for a one-of-a-kind live hash event in Denver, Colorado at the Coffee and Donuts to Go Tour. Again, on February 11th and 12th, tickets are on sale on Eventbrite. You can find the link at thehashishin.com, the Hashishin Instagram, or Coffee and Donuts Instagram at coffee.donuts.adam. As always, we want to give a huge shout out to every person that makes up our community on Patreon. Honestly, we could not do this without you. So thank you so much for your support and for allowing us to continue producing episodes. If you ever can or want to support the podcast and listen to additional interviews, visit us at patreon.com backslash the hashishin. That's the hashish I-N-N. You can also find the link in our Instagram bio or at thehashishin.com. A big shout out to our awesome sponsors, including our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. If you press rosin, use the most trusted bags around. They're used all over the country by some of the top makers. They deliver a quality product along with their stellar customer service. And if you wash hash, don't miss out on what I call the best deal in hash, Rosin Evolution's full mesh wash bags and save 5% on all of it at rosinevolution.com by using our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. Again, THI 710 altogether saves you 5% at checkout. You can also apply the savings by clicking the Rosin Evolution logo at thehashishin.com. Big shout out to Rocky Mountain Seed Bank, who you can visit at rockymountainhigh719.org, where Rocky has curated an awesome selection of genetics for you to hunt through your garden. Rocky is a grower at heart, so he's growing what he makes available at rockymountainhigh719.org. He only puts up genetics and breeders he believes in. He's got the hashers with a wide range of hairy palms, AKA Bloom Seed Coat genetics available. So if you're looking for a pack to find a new keeper, grab it from a trusted source in Rocky and save 25% off your entire purchase by using our savings code, the letters THI. Again, THI at checkout saves you a quarter off your entire order at Rocky Mountain High. 719.org. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 46 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shiragam Amir. Today, I'm super stoked to be here with Tucker of Mega Raw Melts. You can follow them on Instagram 
at mega raw underscore melt. What's up, dude? How are you? How's it going, brother? Thanks for having us on. Appreciate you. Yeah, man. I appreciate you taking the time to talk a few times and it's been nice getting to know you and just an interesting story. You've been in Maine for quite a while now. I didn't really suspect that you had been there for what, almost 20 years now? Yeah, absolutely, man. I moved up here in uh, 2004, actually. Uh, funny enough, was uh, in the computer lab down in New Jersey when I was in high school and just kind of looked on the normal website surfing and looking at the state-by-state laws. And I found out that basically Alaska and Maine were the only two states that didn't have a felony for growing. So I was like, wow, like Maine sounds like a pretty cool place. It only had a misdemeanor and like a thousand dollar fine for penalty <laughs> for growing. I was like, that's crazy. And I was like, well, I don't think I want to move to Alaska. So like, how about Maine? Kind of just checked it out when I'm like, looked at some community college up there. Uh, it was really beautiful and decided to move up and try to figure out how to grow weed. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was going to say, though. It's, it was it sounded like it definitely was motivated by coming up there specifically to either cultivate or do something. Yeah, so I figured if I was going to try to start growing, I might as well do it in the safest place with the laws. And that was luckily happened to be a place that wasn't too far from my family in New Jersey. Moving up here was a nice, pretty easy transition. I mean, I didn't know anybody, just kind of came up here and started going to community college and reading on the forums, trying to figure out how to make a closet little grow or something. And uh, yeah, I ended up going in with a couple friends actually on just like some 400 watt high pressure sodium lights. There was a local grow store, really super basic back in the day, Urban Garden Center. They still are kind of, uh, have become one of the biggest stores in, in the state. Uh, shout out to them. I worked for them for some years. The original owner, Scott, got me and my buddies set up with some 400-watt lights. We were off to the races with some seeds um, that I had originally got from Amsterdam, I think. Yep. And then uh, some other ones that I ordered from Canada through like the Heaven Stairway Seed Company. That was our first indoor grows. Yeah, man. There were some Reservoir Seeds, Apollo 11, and Austin Nirvana Seeds, Misty, that I had brought back from an Amsterdam trip. Yeah, my other friend, we had some Sour Queen, I think, and some basic diesel from Reservoir Seeds uh, that were some of our first grows um, with those 400-watt lights at two different separate friends' apartments in Portland, probably around 2005, I guess. That was how we got started and uh, had my first solo indoor grow in a closet, 2006. Had some sub-cool seeds, uh, Neon Skunk, Jack the Ripper, some more of that Reservoir Basics uh, diesel. Cool, yeah. And you were actually telling me last time you were giving me a little almost like historical thing that I had no idea about, which is about these uh, Reservoir seeds and how that all kind of played in with the seed bank Gypsy Nirvana. And I guess there was a guy actually breeding these seeds in Maine, you told me. But they were pretty yeah, hard. so this guy, Rez, you know, that was really big on the forums. In those days, everyone was kind of waiting on their computers, uh, like staying up all night, trying to see when they were going to drop the seeds and, you know, super hyped. They were, the, you know, the first people to make the sour diesel like in a seed line and do a bunch of crosses with it. 
they, along with Top Dog Seeds, were doing work with ChemDog, you know, at that time. So they were definitely some of the first people to work with some of those genetics, which at the time were, you know, the most sought after in my mind and a lot of people's mind um, in the marketplace due to the flower that we had tried that of those varieties being on another planet from anything we had ever tried before, basically. It's crazy. So he was kind of, it was kind of ambiguous, I think, with him on the forums as to where he was located. A lot of people thought he was in Spain, but he was actually in Maine. And uh, yeah, a friend of mine worked at a car wash and got a chunk of sour diesel as a tip from a guy um, that happened to be neighbors with Red <laughs> and, uh, you know, got some, some of that uh, sour. And I was like, you know, yeah, just some of the best stuff we had seen and other than uh, my friend was from Massachusetts so he had some connections in western mass the Amherst area with some friends so he had access to getting some pretty amazing indoor from out there you know some of the chem dog and and other genetics and flower forms so you know at the time it kind of felt like the epicenter for me for for the best weed on the east coast and yeah it was, it was pretty cool just figuring out after some time that Res was actually in town and um, yeah, I was able to get the seeds that I was basically ordering through a Seeds Direct and Gypsy uh, in England that were getting sent from England in the mail were actually coming from Maine. It was just pretty just weird that I had been like just so into and obsessed with ordering and buying these seeds and literally like looking and reading about them all the time compulsively to then uh, finding out they were basically in your backyard. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah, that is wild, man. And it's definitely pretty funny, almost like it's almost like full circle. And it also makes me think of things like that probably was some of the earliest time where people were like dropping seeds and they were, you know, people were waiting for these drops, which is, I think, a pretty regular thing now, depending on, you know, who the breeder is and, and what they're putting out. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of a different uh, time then. I mean, yeah, people are definitely like waiting to buy the stuff up on the on the websites and stuff and Instagram. You know, I guess it's like the forums were uh, were different. I mean, it didn't really. There was like it was kind of just like there wasn't an announcement of a time. I think when they would do the drops, it would be just yeah, people would literally be sitting on their computers like all the time, uh, just waiting, trying to trying to see. Uh, at any moment it could happen um and when and there were guys like this character snipe that was literally known for just like sniping the packs like before anyone could get him that was literally (laughs) got his name he's kind of a funny character from the new england area that's from was from the forums and was like buying the packs and growing back then but yeah the the level that people were like trying to get them and the prices that they were sometimes fetching and just like, yeah, I mean, just the, the level, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I, I can't think of anything like these days that you compare to it's, it was just a different, I guess the seed market, there wasn't a lot of seed being made on the U S market, I guess. I mean, there was like DNA that was big, but they were in Amsterdam at the time, you know, I think still. So it was like, there wasn't the kind of like widespread domestic breeding seed available that people wanted like on that level that people were like foaming at the mouth for that people wanted so badly they would literally do anything or be staying up all night or just having their computer on 
you know, accessing in the forums to see when these drops are going to happen. So it's just hard to compare with anything these days. Like I never was that obsessed with it, I guess. Like, but I mean, I definitely would check back in. I honestly didn't participate in the forums back then. I would kind of just read the stuff. Um, I never really posted or had a handle. But yeah, unfortunately, it uh, Raz basically uh, paperwork came out that he uh, ratted on Gypsy, and basically he was in detention in the Philippines for a while and kind of in limbo uh, away from his family and. Kind of res became like kind of disappeared, and uh, the seeds kind of stopped being available. And yeah, for a few years there, in the you know, two thousand yeah, basically two thousand five to to two thousand seven or eight. I want to say like yeah, it was like the era where yeah, I mean it was that was that was the best. I had the strawberry diesel in two thousand six. That was basically you know some of the best stuff I had ever grown at the time. It was definitely next level where I'd roll a fat joint and like have to put out the joint halfway because it'd be so high. Like literally heart would be like beating through my chest, like strawberry cough, sour diesel. I mean, yeah, legendary shit. I had the Elvis sour diesel, S1 B5 diesel. Shout out to my boy, Chris, who basically held that for years. The, the, the one that he found, we renamed the main super skunk. And I mean, man, that, that made me some friends at festivals and, uh, Man, to this day, was definitely some of the most uh, legendary cannabis I've ever experienced, seen, or smoked. And I think uh, anyone who ever saw or experienced it would, att- would attest to that. Definitely made some of the most amazing hash ever. And uh, actually is the, basically the reason why I switched over from making butane uh, and started doing exclusively solventless was due to that strain. And uh, at the time... Me getting some trim run hash from my friend of the main super skunk, which is the S1 B5 diesel that he held for years, and basically getting his trim run hash, and that I then pressed with a hair straightener, not even through a screen, but just in a piece of parchment, just the raw hash, and then just dabbed that. The flavor and the high on that was better than any flower uh or excuse me nug run bho they're the best cleanest closed loop stuff i had tried from colorado or massachusetts or anyone that was kind of considered the cutting edge at the time and geez that was probably fast forward 2014 i want to say when he was bringing me that those genetics were definitely legendary and were a huge part of I guess my history and like my life, like living up here and uh, for a lot of people. So yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that they carried with them some of that weight, I guess, of the connection with the the breeder having done a really terrible thing that he did. And it unfortunately is one of those things where now when it's talked about, it's not like, you know, such a friendly thing, I guess, you know, and people have kind of like talked about associations or, uh, you know, knowing him or something. And it's like, you know, I don't really want to hear about it or associate with that kind of a character. So I've always kind of tried to distance myself from it since then. It's all uh, pretty surreal kind of just having lived through it all and uh, having been a part of uh, the scene uh, through those years up here. Yeah, it's really interesting, man. And also, like I told the guys from Helios, Maine isn't one of the first states I would think of when it comes to cannabis but obviously 
the laws have been in, in effect for a while and the scene has been kind of developing for a while. So it is interesting that you've been through it and that you're basically at this part now where, you know, solventless has really shifted over into being a much more popular thing, I feel. I'm curious, did you dab the Super Skunk that time? Were you dabbing already? So the Super Skunk, he first grew probably, man, I want to say like 2006 or 2007 was when he first grew that. And I mean, he kept that clone for seven years by the time that I was, um, that, that he made the hash and I started, I was up until 2014, I wasn't dabbing any non-solvent hash really. I think flower rosin had maybe just started to become a thing and it was like just being discussed. Soil grown solventless, I know, shout out to him, had just um, basically come out with that. I think at the time, yeah, I hadn't even really thought about like pressing the stuff through a screen, I think. And and, uh, yeah, I was just, just dabbing that. And I remember there were some other friends of mine that were, were also washing their trim when I was just, I had just been just blasting my trim at the time. And so these other friends, I got some of their trim and I remember like squeezing it with the hair straightener and like squeezing hard on the piece of like their hash and trying to get the oil to kind of like separate away from the hair straightener and like the like contaminant part, like squeezing it really hard, like with the flower rosin, but just trying to be like, even before I had, you know, heard or thought of, I guess, like, or anyone that I was aware of anyone using like a filter bag with the hash to try to contain the contaminant. But I was kind of like, I kind of was like, huh, that's interesting. Like I could kind of like somewhat take some of the contaminant out and somewhat almost do like a flower rosin kind of tech with the hash, you know, where I could kind of squeeze like some of the contaminant would stay under the plate and the oil would kind of go out and it made it a little bit more dabbable versus the just straight trim run bubble that was like leave a ton of char on your nail and totally gunk it up. So yeah, it was pretty cool that I think I saw, man, I, I can't remember the first time I saw someone doing like the filter bag, but uh, I definitely started in 2015 to start experimenting with just washing my own trim and then getting some just like of the nylon mesh, I guess, making a little pouch with that. And then I had another friend from Massachusetts that I had met at uh, Camp Bisco and uh, he came up. And he had a basically hair straightener that had like a vice grip plier, a C-clamp it's called. Okay. It was a, like a vice grip plier bottom with the C-clamp of metal pieces. And he had taken the hair straightener plates apart. And so like the base of the hair straightener was still kind of on the this kind of wooden block. And it was just a super ghetto put together thing. But when it had the clamp that you could basically... Uh, clamp the plates with some pressure and put some real pressure on it. And then it had a little uh, eye thing that he'd put instead of the little screw piece at the bottom where I could take a screwdriver and he would, once you had it engaged, you could take the screwdriver and put it in the little eye hole and you twist the screwdriver to increase the pressure on it. And so that was literally the first press that I was ever using. So yeah, it was, it was a little harder back in those days to make rosin. <laughs> 
but it's funny. I was up like, uh, I remember I was up all night. Like I had micro plane, my entry for the secret cup in August of 2015 micro planed the entry. And then I stayed up all night pressing, like having blowouts. And yeah, I just remember like using all pressed, pressed out the entire ounce of rosin, my whole entry and then packaged it all for the secret cup on that little ghetto press. It may be hard to remember, but how long do you think that took you? I mean, like I said, I stayed up all night. I, I had a friend probably helping me uh, with the packaging and stuff the next day. But I mean, I was basically up all night pressing and then getting ready to drop it off because uh, there was like the drop off. You basically dropped off, then you got your kit. And then I think like, I want to say the event was like a week later. So you got to take the kit. It was like a take home and like vote at the end of the week kind of thing was the way it was formulated. So it was basically like, I just had to have it ready for that day. But I mean, I was scrambling to, to get it pressed and, uh, you know, have enough, make sure I had enough for the entry. Um, you ended up being the only non-solvent entry at that secret cup. There was two. So there was one, um, that was like a dry sift rosin, I think from one other local guy in Maine. And then I was literally the only hash rosin. Pretty much everyone else was either Nug Run or uh, Trim Run BHO, I guess. Yeah, we ended up placing 13th out of 30 entries. So I thought that was pretty good. And one best non-solvent, I guess, kind of by default. But I thought it was really... That was kind of the also moment for me where it really was like after smoking everything. And I was like, man, my thing, my entry was made with trim and it was made with, uh, yeah, it was, it was a combination of Gorilla Glue and Sour Diesel that I was growing at the time. So it was East Coast Sour Glue that was my entry. But yeah, it was, it was pretty eye opening that like the Gorilla Glue and Sour Diesel trim that was made into hash and then rosin was as stony and flavorful as a lot of the best nug run bho in my opinion and a lot of people commented that it was good i mean i think a couple people maybe got some that had maybe a little bit of like blowout in it so i think there was one or two people that commented it had some contaminant or something but it's like yeah i was competing against boondock alchemist and deep woods extracts that were doing you know closed loop bho or whatever i was just like at the time i thought it was a pretty incredible entry that stood up that kind of changed my mind, I guess, in terms of the possibility of what solventless and rosin could be as far as a dabbable product, something that was going to be on the market. So that was kind of how it all began. Yeah, you told me you felt like it was kind of a jumping point for you to really go into solventless and, and start almost refining the process yourself. Yeah, shout out to the Secret Cup. I saw a documentary recently about it. And it's pretty cool, man. It's also kind of interesting to see how it kind of came, you know, it was, it was fleeting, like almost everything else in cannabis. So it's kind of cool to see it in context of these times, because we'll eventually look at these times as something that has kind of come and gone also. Yeah, man, absolutely. Shout out to the secret cup. I went just to two, uh, the one in 2015 as the competitor. And I went back to the next one they had the next year just as a vendor. But um, yeah, great experience. Um, it was a really, really cool event. And uh, yeah, it brought a lot of people together and was was a really amazing thing that kind of 
was a stepping stone for me. And I think a lot of people, um, it definitely was like the first place I remember hearing about, I think the third gen fam shout to third gen fam and the Skittles. But basically yeah, it was the first time I remember hearing about the Skittles and like, yeah, that was, that was like beat everything out. And it was the best stuff on there. And I think I remember trying, uh, my buddy was pretty plugged in out in Colorado and stuff. And, and with those guys, the secret cup guys and such and traveled a lot and, I think I got to try a dab of it at some some point back then. And man, yeah, it was uh, definitely like yeah, the, the best thing I think I had ever dabbed. So I was just like, wow, man, like it is it is pretty amazing that uh, Solventless has been given a showcase uh, with something like the Secret Cup and uh, that, that these people uh, were able to bring some new products like hash rosin out and kind of blow people's minds with it. It's so awesome and such an important part of the history and uh, all this. So grateful to be a part of that. Yeah, I agree, man. It's cool. It's just like uh, almost like history in the making. Let's fast forward a little bit. You told me you feel like it's a weird sensation getting checks for hash from dispensaries now. Talk to us a little bit about how throughout the years you've gotten to this point and what it feels like to be here now? Man, yeah, it is pretty surreal, I guess. Just, uh, yeah, having talked to my parents and just feeling like I've always just wanted to make this my thing and like find a way to forge a career that's looked at as legitimate and that I can make a living on and, you know, have a house and yeah, business and exist uh, in in the legal framework, so to speak, I guess, and not not always have to be so afraid of the legal ramifications of what we do and having to hide in the shadows and be so secret of it. Yeah, because I come from a time where it definitely was not friendly, even I mean, even up here, and just like the way that uh, yeah, I grew up in a time where it was where it was different, and coming in New Jersey, I mean, yeah, if you had more than fifty grams, that was intent to distribute. So anytime I would drive back down to New Jersey, like with the stuff I would grow up here, I'd always be. I mean, Jesus, I was an idiot back then, you know, driving with probably yeah, my car that had a rejected sticker and stuff. I mean, yeah, I was asking for it, but knock on wood. I thank God I uh, never got in, 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 into any trouble down there. Yeah, I guess it's just, it is kind of crazy having come up at a time where my first grow was like a gorilla grow in the woods down in State Park in New Jersey. Yeah, just having to like be super afraid and careful and go out in the middle of the night yeah, living living that kind of life and just like being so secretive about about what you're doing and trying to just like yeah, not get caught, I guess. <laughs> and now kind of yeah, I guess I guess we have we have a luxury and I mean yeah, some people I guess don't realize like how, how nice they have it now, I guess, because they never had to exist in that framework where it was so different. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful that it's changed and uh grateful that I have the opportunity that I do was able to kind of get in uh, on the ground floor so to speak having a brand in the marketplace that was known for having solventless. You know, yeah, I was basically the first person in Maine to have a brand on the market bringing the jars. I mean, super basic labels and stuff back then, but yeah, my buddy Chris, shout out to Indoor Plant Kingdom. He had other than like the secret cup and stuff, he had some of the first indoor farmers markets. Um, I think it was back in 2016, I want to say. 
and uh, yeah, his space over there. And it was totally just kind of like, uh, <laughs> he didn't really have the permits and stuff or any of this. He kind of just like threw this uh, event and it was, uh, yeah, it went off. And, um, you know, luckily nothing, nothing bad happened with the city or anything. But yeah, it was great. And that was kind of the first place where I was able to have a little like table other than the secret cup, I guess, to sell my stuff. Just like have, have some of my products showcased solventless. So yeah, it's it's cool to see now how that's kind of it's it's become a product that has space on the shelf in most stores and you know, there's God, I don't know. I can't even tell you how many solventless brands, even just in, in Maine alone, let alone the East Coast and the country now. It's pretty amazing to see how it's all grown and really amazing that so many people can keep furthering the craft and uh, all the advancements that people have figured out with the heat tech and the growing diamonds and cold curing, making the, the carts. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing that now, like anything, you know, where people are like, oh, at first when it started, it was hard to think that it could mimic and be as good or on the level of the butane stuff in some of these uses and applications and uh yeah it's pretty impressive that people have figured out how to imitate it or basically make the same thing using similar or uh applying the same techniques to the solvents to get it to uh make the make the diamonds or the carts or whatever you want just like you do with the with the butane so it's cool i'm always curious like what the public's take was at that time so in 2016 i think you said when you did set up this booth, how did people feel about solving this? Were people like aware of it or was butane basically the main thing in Maine? So yeah, I'll never forget like going to drop off my entry for the secret cup and going to the house. There's just probably uh, 30 or I mean, probably 40 people in this house all just set up dabbing in different areas with their little click and crew with their BHOs. <laughs> Uh, and I come in with the rosin and, um, yeah, my buddy was like, oh yeah, what do you guys think of rosin to this one couple guys? And they were just like, fuck rosin. It was very clear, I guess, from the beginning that it was kind of met with resistance from a lot of people. And I think also at the time, flower rosin and sift rosin were some of the first things, like it was a little while before it evolved to where people were doing better quality hash and then making that into rosin. Um, so I think at first, most people's impressions had been from flour rosin or, you know, dry sift rosin that maybe wasn't the best product. So in those cases, yeah, it was much more inferior to the BHO that was around that was beautiful and clear and tasted amazing and made your forehead sweat and you feel like you were going to throw up because it was so strong. <laughs> so yeah, compared to that, a lot of the rosin that maybe was available to some people or that people were offered to dab initially um, in their first impressions might have been something that did not compare to that or was much, much worse. I think it took a while. And I mean, even for me, you know, like I said, we started just doing trim. So it was a while before I think people were wanting to devote fresh frozen. I mean, live resin was kind of just even still a newish thing, I think, where people were actually devoting like whole plants to uh, making BHO, like without dry, without having it be just like dry material. 
So I remember, yeah, my first fresh frozen wash was like some of my outdoor back in 2015. And I remember that just made the most sense to devote because it was like the same thing. It was kind of like, man, like this is outdoor, like this flower is not going to be very good. Like, let me just wash it and see how it does kind of thing. And I think, you know, obviously the flower market was so good for so long that, you know, it made absolutely no sense to try to turn it into uh, hash um, unless you were just a hash person because there wasn't really a market for the solventless products at that time. So yeah, I definitely remember kind of going to uh, Chalice yeah in the summer of 2016 with some of my like outdoor from the previous season, fresh frozen. And I had like fresh, started fresh freezing some of like the lowers of our indoor stuff, some of the kind of scrappy pieces as well. So I had some indoor fresh frozen from, you know, the, the not as choice tops. But it was really nice melt. And uh, yeah, I remember bringing that out to Emerald Cup and just like smoking with like the essential extracts guys. And uh, shout out Sam from Mile High Melts. Met him out there. I'm at the booth back then. Yeah, Sam's a cool dude. So that was cool. And uh, that was also another milestone I just want to touch on. Going to Chalice in 2016. So yeah, I came out and brought that fresh frozen that I had had made from my outdoor and from the lowers of the, basically I had Gorilla Glue and Memory Loss that I yeah really, really enjoyed and had some nice melt. You can still see the pictures there on my Instagram page. But yeah, so that was a really important point because that was my first time being exposed to the Grape God, fresh frozen whole plant ice oil. That was like on another level of what I thought was possible for a solventless product other than rosin. Basically, I had never seen or experienced anything like that before on that level of like melt and flavor and just everything. So yeah, I remember trying the cookies and cream. Shout out to Frosty Nug Man, Frosty Nug Lady over at their booth with Nectars back in 2016, uh, was hanging out with them and met them back then. And uh, they were definitely a big part of my journey, showing me that grape god, letting me try that. Man, that was that was incredible. And I just remember going and like camping out at the table where the guys were because he wasn't actually set up anywhere uh, with a booth. He was just, there was just a table of these guys that had about $200,000 worth of glass laid out on the table. That was their booth. They had no advertising. And I think they had a rosin press and they were pressing out like the six star, just like any of like the like fire, like six star they had bought. They were like literally pressing out on the rosin press. <laughs> so ridiculous. And I remember just like, these guys were super cool. They gave me some globs and I shared some stuff with them. And I just remember like just dying from a dab and Finally was able to catch Grape God. He was basically out, but I got a gram of cookies and cream and a gram of orange cream from him. Yeah, I mean, that was that was the standard at the time. And uh, that really became for me the standard that I was striving for. I was trying to figure out what it was that allowed him to be able to create a product like that. So shout out to Grape God for the inspiration that was on that level that was above and beyond anything I had ever seen or experienced at the time. Yeah. Also that Pacific Northwest roots, Kaya's coffee was incredible too. 
remember meeting them, uh, the, the, their guy at the booth there in 2016. That was some incredible melt. So both of those and, and yeah, some other melt, I guess, really, really uh, changed the, the outlook for me and made me want to s- figure out what plants I could grow that were going to produce that kind of resin that I could have. <laughs> Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, I think that's part of what it's about is is having those references. And just to kind of counter that point, you did tell me that Maine did have a pretty active kind of bubble hash scene and that there were multiple grades. So you had seen bubble hash up until that point and probably even pretty good stuff, but maybe not to that level. Yeah, um, I had gotten some bubble hash through uh, some friends. My friend Chris that I touched on, Indoor Plant Kingdom, shout to him. He's been a huge part of my history and influence up here and been a friend of mine. And another friend of his, Brian, Best Friend Farms, another uh, local grower that moved to California and has since returned here and is doing some really incredible sun-grown and also old-school style hash. Check him out for sure. But yeah, so Brian used to, uh, I think, yeah, get some, we used to get some stuff that he got and I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but that was like some of the first bubble hash that I think I was getting around here um, through Chris. I mean, I mean, yeah, it was like $40 a gram at the time, you know, but, and you know, this was before we were dabbing. So it was like really just the only thing you could do is like top off a bowl or whatever. But I mean, it was, it was really melty and, and fire yeah, there were definitely like intermittent times where, you know, someone would have some key for some dry stick or some some sort of hash from some something that was incredible. I remember getting some sort of kind of pressed key from this guy that was like really reasonably priced. I remember it had some like hairs or like fibers and you kind of had to break it up and like decontaminate, like take some of the hairs out. But when you did, I mean, what was left was, I mean, it was fire, like definitely <laughs> like really high and tasted really good. But yeah, like there wasn't, it wasn't consistently like a lot of good stuff, I guess, around here as far as hash. I definitely was mostly started dabbing BHO, I guess, in 2011, 2012, basically was, was when I was first getting into that. Yeah, no, that's cool, man. Well, cool. Uh, I think this could be a good time for a smoke break. You down? Perfect. Absolutely. Awesome. I want to take a moment to again thank everyone who makes up our community on Patreon for their support and for allowing us to produce episode 47 with Tucker of Mega Raw Melts and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Nick Dude in Maine, Solventless AF in Michigan, Melt Walkie Jeff, Jonah in Illinois, the team at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Kevin of Lifted Indina, Side of Mids in Arizona, The Real Cannabis Chris, Macro Melts in SoCal, the homie Big C, the Chile Relleno Burrito, and David of Rosin Evolution. I thank each and every one of you. Now back to the episode. So talk to me a little bit about your trip to BC before you went to Amsterdam. It was the first place that you saw seeds. What were you doing out there? Basically, my dad used to live in Oregon. We basically used to go up to Washington and then also to BC. His late wife, her brother actually lived up in Vancouver. 
so we went up to visit him. And so I had some exposure of going up there and I was aware of like Mark Emery and the other stuff in Canada. And uh, yeah, just happened to be going with my stepbrother at the time, actually out in BC. And I think it was like the kind company or some seed company I got, I can't remember, but they had an office. You went upstairs and kind of went down the hall to a doorway and it was just like knock on the door. And I just kind of had a coffee table and some pictures of weed on the wall. (laughs) And guy came out to the desk and kind of asked you what you were looking to grow. And they had a catalog. We didn't have anywhere to grow at the time. Um, Neither of us was set up with anything. So it was more just the interest. And I remember having the catalog. And I mean, yeah, I had that catalog for years. I had some like Scentsy seeds and Paradise seeds. Uh, I had some Dr. Atomic from Canada. I just remember just obsessing over like the pictures and the descriptions and the yields and finishing times for outdoor and indoor. And it was definitely a really cool experience to to go up there. And and Vancouver had a really cool scene. They kind of had some of the first like coffee shops, I think at the time where they weren't selling product there, but people could kind of come in and bring their own stuff. Uh, and smoke and like, you know, low key kind of like sell stuff, I think, you know, (laughs) I think they eventually got raided. And there was like the new Amsterdam cafe and stuff. I think they got raided, unfortunately, and like shut down and stuff. Um, I remember going there years later. And like, yeah, there were people just like in the seed place, just like smoking bongs. And it was very Uh, out in the open and different to to anything I had ever experienced. I had never been to Amsterdam or anything at the time. So it was really cool. Uh, Canada was kind of the the closest thing to like to Amsterdam that I had ever experienced, I guess, at the time. So it's cool to see the the role that the scene from up there and the evolution all uh, played in things too. Um, With Mark Emery, just like selling all the seeds and, yeah, proliferating the genetics all over the world. Pretty cool. It is pretty cool, man. And like you said, that was one of the places where you could get seeds at the time. And then, like we mentioned earlier, there was seed banks, like, for example, in London, where I, funny enough, I was doing a little bit of research. And it's interesting, like, I think the reason they can and could sell seeds is because it was just either the plants or the buds or the leaves that were illegal, not necessarily the seeds. and so. These were some of the early places. And then obviously, like you said, Amsterdam, I think was definitely became one of the places. And you ended up going there on a trip, which we've talked about a little bit earlier. But funny enough, I think some of the first seeds you got there were from like a Canadian company, weren't they? Um, Yeah. So, geez, let me think. So I got the KC Brains. I think it was the, yeah, the spice of life, I guess it would have been the adventure mix, maybe. Is that what you're thinking of? So I actually went to the Cannabis Cup, yeah, in 2002, and I got some stuff from from Gypsy, the guy that I had later bought all those res and different brands of seeds from, from Seeds Direct and such, Seed Boutique. But uh, yeah, those were some of the first ones I ever got from him. The adventure mix, which was like a sweet tooth... I think that got pollinated by all these different things or something. So it was, you know, it was sweet tooth by blue satellite, sweet tooth by shishka berry, sweet tooth by who knows what else. <laughs> Block it. <laughs> I don't know. 
whatever else Spice of Life was working with back in those days. But man, it was some crazy bubblegummy, blueberry, just, I mean, yeah, just some incredible. We lost a lot of that plant to mold, I remember. But yeah, it was it was definitely cool to see some of the genetics. And I definitely did order a lot of seeds even before ordering from the UK and, and those those guys from this company, Heaven Stairway, back when I was first like, on the forums and stuff. They kind of got shut down um, in the process of overgrowing all that, getting shut down and changing over to IC Mag. But yeah, before Heaven Stairway got shut down, that was a big site I would be checking regularly. And I ordered some like Spice Brothers. That was like some of the first stuff. I got and uh, grew some some plants. Yeah, I think it was like the Willie's Wonder by Sour Diesel. I remember called like Sour Weasel or something. Just like <laughs> that was unfortunately like in my friend's closet, and you couldn't get in there. And like the plant literally died, and we had to harvest it. Uh, like I mean, it was it was close to harvest, but I mean, at least I remember smoking it, but it was not very good. Unfortunately, <laughs> you kind of biffed that one. Big time. That was back back when we didn't didn't really know better, and I didn't have access to the plants, unfortunately. So it was kind of out of my hands. But yeah, Canada definitely uh, for a while was the cutting edge. Um, before I started going to seed boutique and the gypsy stuff over across the sea, uh, Canada was a big source of seeds and uh, you know genetics for me. Just looking at and researching. Yeah, and you mentioned going to the Cannabis Cup in 2002 in Amsterdam. And I was telling you that I remember those cups. And I don't remember if it was in 2002 or 2003 that I went to Amsterdam for the first time. But I always remember wanting to go to those High Times Cups. And just like I couldn't do it or I couldn't afford it at the time. But you, funny enough, had to scrounge some money up to get going. Can you tell us about your experience and kind of how that impacted the rest of your cannabis path, if you want to call it? Yeah, I mean, man, it was at the time, it was kind of an obsession. I remember I had to sell my paintball gun and all my equipment and kind of try to scrounge up money to uh, buy the basic package. They had this like 420 tours package that came with the judge's pass and uh, airfare and transportation to and from, you know, your hotel and depending on which package you got, you stayed in a better hotel. I mean, I only had enough for the cheapest package. So we were just a hostel, but it, was, it wasn't too bad. Um, they had a vending machine downstairs that like had weed and alcohol in, in the vending machine. So that was, that was pretty legendary. Yeah, it was, it was cool, man. Just flying out there. Um, a lot of almost everyone that was on our flight seemed like they were going to the Cannabis Cup. We flew out of like New York. So there was a lot of cats from New York that were you know, pretty loud and just rowdy characters that were going there for the first time and stuff. So we got to kind of share the airplane and the, the space with those guys. And I think a lot of them were staying at our hostel, had gotten like the same tour package. Yeah, I remember getting on the on the bus after uh, we got picked up, man, and it was it was just incredible. Uh, everyone everyone had gotten a goodie bag right when you entered the bus, and people had gotten on, and there was like a gram of last year's like best winner or something. And uh, so everyone, by the time I got on the bus, it was all just hot box. Everyone was smoking, <laughs> and uh, this one guy from New York was just like 
pulled out some alcohol he bought at the airport and you know it was just getting rowdy and yeah it was uh it was it was quite an experience unlike anything i had ever experienced before at the time i mean i was just 18 i just turned 18 and then yeah i had the judges pass that got you into the party house basically where they had all the all the products exhibited and i mean they had everything from full glass gravity bombs and grow lights crazy different vaporizers yeah these vaporizers that was like a heat gun it was like a giant glass globe that they would load up a massive bowl and like hit it with the heat gun on the top and you would just have a little like kind of a glass straw sticking out of the side and you could get like two or three people on the sides of it <laughs> And I think that was at Serious Seeds booth, the guys that did AK-47 and stuff. That was super memorable, uh, going to their booth and hitting that crazy vaporizer. Um, there was like Sensi Seeds, Paradise Seeds, Soma Seeds, TH Seeds, Homegrown Fantasy. Man, can't remember all of them, of course. But yeah, I remember Super being into Soma Seeds. And uh, wanting to get his stuff. And like, I didn't really have money for the seeds, but I bought some flour from him, some of the NYC diesel. And yeah, that was, that was incredible. It was definitely like some of the best stuff I had smoked on the trip. And uh, <clears throat> I remember getting some Jack Hair from the Sensi Seeds shop that was super mind bending. Like, I remember I felt like I had like electricity crackling through my brain, just like, Hadn't smoked too many crazy uh, sativas like that before. We got some haze around. I grew up in New Jersey, so we would get some of like the like thirty dollar a gram haze that came down from the city and stuff. So I mean, we got we get some stuff that had to, you know somewhat of the similar high. But man, I just remember that that Jack hair really got me, and that was super memorable. Smoking hash definitely like some of the first time like smoking really good hash. Uh, this guy gave me a hit of some like jelly hash from Soma that was yeah incredible. Um, it definitely got me into another stratosphere of high. <laughs> now the jelly, I think you mentioned this to me, and possibly even Nick T thinking back to his interview was a combination of BHO and water hash, or at least that's kind of what it was rumored to be, right? Yeah, it was pretty controversial at the time because back then. No one was really like making BHO much like that was like known on the market. It was like kind of a clandestine thing. It was you probably didn't know like where it came from kind of a thing, you know. So it was it was controversial. And I remember even reading about Soma in, in the cannabis culture or High Times magazines about how he was kind of like lamenting that like he the jelly hash wasn't getting more like love i guess i don't know and i think it, it costs a lot more also because i think yeah at the time there wasn't any i mean yeah there was it was all mostly like imported hash they didn't really have the isolator hash and stuff so at the time the jelly hash did kind of breach that gap i think between i don't know i mean they must have been blasting some pretty good material to make i don't think it was junk that they were putting in there it had to be pretty fire so then they would mix it with the hash and it would really bring out not only potency but flavor and smell i think too and it kind of just would change change the consistency and yeah i think the way yeah the way that you were able to smoke it i think it made it a more of kind of like a dabble able to be like smoked on its own 
type of a product before dabbing was really a thing, I guess. So that's also like why it kind of deserves some recognition and just like to be talked about in the history of the transition of uh, just smoking hash the traditional way, like either on weed or like in like a chillum or something, you know, that's designed for that. I guess, or smash. I mean, I know this, you've probably seen the hash smashing pipes. Like I remember my homie Hunter, shout out Hunter from Hidden Forest. He was definitely one of the first people I saw like uh, at a festival, like with really heady glass pipe that had like thing to smash, like a little like wand to like smash just like for hash. Um, And I remember smoking hash with him at a festival back then when I was like first starting to dab and stuff. So that was pretty cool. He had some pretty good hash at the time that he was smoking on some bubble hash. So I don't know if it's the same thing, but yeah, I remember a guy, funny enough, locally who had this kind of wand. It was made of glass, I believe. And then the end was made of glass and you'd yep. heat that up, right? And then basically you bring that up to the bowl, but he would do it with the flour. So that's interesting that they were already doing it with the hash. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you could do it with both, but yeah, I remember it would have the bowl of the pipe would have the holes on the side instead of on the bottom. So yeah, it was cool. You kind of just heat it and it, the smoke would get sucked down the side instead of the ash. We kind of have to clean it out after, I guess. But at the time, you know, it was pretty cool. It was it was a way to just smoke just the hash without yeah putting it on top of a bowl or trying to roll it in a joint, you know, it was before. People were figuring out how to put the snakes right in the middle and make a nice donut. And I think, I mean, man, back, I remember back when I would try to roll joints with the hash, it would always be on like one side and be burning terribly uneven. (laughs) You know, you'd be like, man, that was a big waste. You know, shit would be canoeing all over the place. And yeah, not so fun sometimes. (laughs) Could be hit or miss. I agree, man. Yeah, it definitely is not the easiest thing. I'm not the best roller, but. Yeah, I can never really quite get it right. So putting it right down the middle is definitely an art. But back to the jelly hash, you also said that you smoked some high quality key from the gray area and you had smoked some water hash, I think again from the spice of life possibly. So do you feel like Amsterdam was kind of your real first exposure to hash and it almost stayed in your mind until maybe BHO came back around or something? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that it was definitely my first exposure to like a wide open market of uh, all different kinds of hash, I think. So it was pretty cool to see the first examples, I guess, I had ever seen of the isolator hash that was kind of just like it kind of was like green teeth looking stuff that I got from one of the booths. And I think it was only it was pretty cheap, only 20 or 30 euros a gram, but it was from like a legend's seeds company it was like some sort of a sweet tooth or some sort of a mix of that i think and that was really really potent stuff and uh yeah the gray gray area man shout out gray area they're one of the best coffee shops and to this day i mean as as far as my knowledge when i went back in 2010 they were still you know had the best weed that i saw from anywhere and they still had that gray crystal and as far as the price i mean I think it was 25 euros for a gram of the gray crystal and it smoked. I mean, to me, it got me as high and smoked as good, or you even got more of it, I think, than the isolator hash that was like 50 to 60 euros a gram. I remember going in on with some buddies on some isolator hash 
of some like kosher kush or some such that later time in like 2010. And I remember like we rolled it all on a, a joint. Man, it was good, but for the price that we smoked on that joint, I was like, man, the Keith was, you know, I feel like it got me even way higher, the unpressed stuff. So, man, it's it's so dependent on strain, I think, and uh, just uh, where you go to get stuff too and, and um, who's doing it, I guess. And I guess their, their crystal stuff was just, I think it was a lot of just the Keith maybe from their flower that they were harvesting and having at the place or whatever from some of the more ones that were really putting off a lot of Keith. Cause I think the last time I got it was just like strain specific, like silver bubble. And yeah, between the 2002 trip and the 2010 trip, just getting and, and seeing all the hash there was definitely really eye opening. And, and, you know, yeah, gave me a different perspective, I guess, before BHO was a thing and I started dabbing for sure. Yeah, the gray area definitely is a cool little shop. I haven't been back in years, but I just remember it's really small. And the one thing that always sticks out to me is that it was like the one shop that was owned or at least run by North American dudes. So that was kind of cool. And they did have some legendary strains. Like at the time, it was like the Great White Shark maybe was the strain. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about genetics. The pie dough seems to be a strain that you're definitely known for. But you told me privately that you feel that the Gorilla Glue has been even more impactful to your cultivation slash hash making career. Can you expand upon that? Absolutely. Yeah. So up here, man, I remember reading on the forums and looking at the pictures and stuff about the Gorilla Glue and... um a friend of mine, Melting Pot Farm, shout out Melting Pot Farm. He was the original that made it possible for me to get the Gorilla Glue in-house. And at the time, it was there wasn't really anyone up here growing it, to my knowledge. Certainly wasn't being brought to market in flower form. So I was definitely one of, if not the first person in Maine to be growing it and like bringing the flower to market. So... It was definitely at the time the strongest people were. That was right when when people were kind of starting to dab. And uh, I remember like I was kind of like they were like, yeah, come take these dabs. And I was like, dude, I got this weed that's literally stronger than your dabs. That's going to get you higher. That's literally has more hash on this weed. The hash that you're trying to smoke with me that's full of butane and maybe isn't the purged the best. So kind of got it almost got a chip on my shoulder about it because it was so good and um yeah it just produced the amount of resin the stickiness the amount of resin that it produced it seemed like was kind of on another level and that was really at the time once i got it and kind of started incorporating that into my grows basically just growing exclusively gorilla glue with you know a few other plants here and there but from about 2014 Till up about the time that I started more growing the pie dough and incorporating other strains about 2017, those three years, it was the main strain that we grew. Yeah, even when I moved to my current location, uh, I basically had a bunch of Gorilla Glue plants. That was the foundation for my outdoor grow that I basically brought a bunch of old pots of soil, dumped them here on the day that I signed the closing papers and brought all the the gorilla glue plants and some 
30 gallon plastic grow bags and used all the recycled soil and uh, planted all those gorilla glues. That was some of the first fresh frozen that I actually put through the freeze dryer. So yeah, it was definitely a big step to have having stuff that really produced an amazing amount of hash and a quality of hash, both with flavor and potency that really set it apart from anything else at the time that was around. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget, yeah, bringing that first, you know, Gorilla Glue, like fresh frozen ice water hash to market. I mean, it was just so good and so melty. It really was amazing to have an outdoor, like fresh frozen product that was standing up to indoor BHO and stuff at the time. Um, And be able to command a pretty high price. So yeah, got to, uh, got to appreciate the Gorilla Glue shout out and rest in peace to Josie Wales. Super appreciative and grateful that he let that out and allowed that for people to cultivate and proliferate that plant because it really had a huge, huge impact on myself and uh, so many people. Yeah, I agree. I think it definitely was a game changer, man, especially when it comes to, like you said, hash production as well. And you mentioned earlier with some of your other plants, like using some of the lowers or or the nuggets of the inside ones uh, and only washing the outdoor ones. Was the Gorilla Glue a genetic that you used to transition over from that where you actually grew it indoor and used the whole plant fresh frozen? Um, So indoor. At the time, flower market was like still pretty good, I guess, up till like yeah, 2017 time. So I was mostly harvesting the indoor tops as flower and then, you know, maybe the lower scrappy stuff that wasn't so nice or you didn't want to bother trimming would get washed. And then the outdoor, the first year, 2016, it would have been uh, so, so fall of 2016, I washed pretty much most of like, I kept some of the flour, I guess, but I washed some. Then 2017, I kept a little bit of flour, washed a lot of the plants that I had outdoor, which was mainly stuff that I had just put from my indoor last run. I think it was that same run that I found the pie dough where I grew like sour banana sherbet and stuff. So I grew a bunch of those outside and made hash from all pretty much almost all of those but yeah, basically 2018 until this season, completely dedicated every gram of the fresh of the, of the outdoor fresh frozen to hash. But yeah, I guess Gorilla Glue has kind of been phased out a little bit at this point, just because it hasn't been the most popular in the solventless market, I think. It's a tough one for outdoor. It's hard to get. I think the flavor that you can sometimes get on the indoor and even the indoor, I think the Gorilla Glue is an easy plant to grow per se in terms of like, is it an easy or difficult plant to cultivate? I think it's an easy plant to cultivate and produce a flower from. I think it's a difficult plant to really dial in and get to express in the way that I would like to see it express just because I guess I haven't seen much of that old expression, but when it was at its best, yeah, I would put the flavor up against nearly anything. I mean, yeah, I remember just the trim run hash rosin just being so mouth coating and mouth watering. 
and uh, yeah, it almost made you drool. It was so, so good. I think it's 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 a really amazing strain. Deserves its recognition amongst the list of all time great strains out there. Is it something you still hold? Uh, I don't have it in the house at the moment. I know Hunter still is growing it, but um, unfortunately, I kind of have a small space. Doesn't really allow me to keep moms as much. I really, honestly, just kind of rip clones as I go and try to keep around the genetics that are continuing to be sought after and continuing to be things that I want to have as part of my brand and stuff that I want to smoke, really, I guess. Um, in some ways, it's it's mostly the pie dough, but still trying to find other stuff that I'm really liking. I really like the Z Cube also that I'm growing right now. Um, the lemon squeeze, I definitely like. Seems like the lemon in general, just all things being equal, is a harder just sell, just like given on the name, I guess, as a lemon strain. I think people kind of have an association with lemon. That's Yeah, they either love it or hate it. So yeah, that might be one that I kind of phase out a little bit. I mean, I don't know, man. I'm when it comes to this, I guess, and when it comes to stuff that I want to have in my garden and like represent as like my single source product from my garden. I'm pretty like cutthroat when it comes to the plants, you know, it's like if it's not something I really want or is like really like something that I think people are really going to want, like even if I really like it, I guess it's like yeah, like the lemon squeeze I'm considering, you know, I I have some friends that are interested in running it. I think Hunter's possibly wants to run it in his system. But yeah, I guess for me, it's just, I want to have stuff that's really sought after and really going to be things that people want and are, are, uh, I'm, I'm known for, I guess. So yeah, still, still trying to search for what all that is going to comprise, but that's part of the excitement and part of the hunt and part of what keeps me going, I guess, is, man, I think it's hard to really find stuff that stands out even more these days, I think, just because there's so much hype and so much perception that drives quality now. I think, yeah, it's just like with product, I think the actual value versus the perceived value, I think we're at a point where marketing and branding is so powerful and impacts the customer and the consumer so much in their choices and just their feeling about the way they assume a product is going to be. And uh, yeah, sometimes you build it up in your head based on, you know, whatever it is, the look or the description or, um, you know, what you tried from someone else of the same brand or you know, whatever, and then you get it and you're kind of let down. And yeah, it's, it's, it can be frustrating, I guess. But yeah, I guess I'm just trying to continually have product if it's got my my brand on it and it's from my garden. I want it to be something that I really think is on a, on a level that's cutting edge. It's not easy to always find that and bring that to market, I think, when you're really kind of, like I said before to you about just kind of being snobby kind of having that edge a little bit when you get to a certain level of like competitiveness and uh, standard in, in anything, whether it's like elite sports or uh, fishing or whatever you do in life that you're competitive in and, and love, you kind of got to be cutthroat at, at times, I guess, with, with things and, and not always just keeping everything around. I don't know. I mean, 
I, I have the utmost respect for the people that keep all the genetics alive and hold 20, 30, 50 different genetics. I mean, God bless these people. Like, thank you for, for doing that hard work. I know it's definitely appreciated. I guess uh, for me, it's it's hard to find things that check all those boxes for me. And most of the time that I've gotten things that supposedly are going to perform like that, like Mac was a good example for me, I think. When I got the Mac, like expecting it to be, you know, the best thing based on the way it looked and the way it was uh, perceived, I think. And then it was it was funny that I got it and I grew about half of my outdoor as Mac. And it kind of seemed like it was before it was even really being grown indoors here. And I grew it like once indoor before I kind of had a bunch of plants lined up and grew them outdoor. But I remember when I brought the rosin to market, it was like the hype had already come and gone with the strain, even though it hadn't even like made it to Maine yet to be grown indoors and like brought around because I had it thinking like, oh man, I got this, all this Mac rosin, like let me, I'm going to come in and like kill it because no one has Mac and it's like a brand new thing. But it was like, just not that great it wasn't anything that special to me i guess in my opinion and i mean i know the flower some people really like it and i think it has a really great bag appeal but in terms of like the terps and the effect and stuff it's not the best resin it's not really a great plant for hash um in my opinion so kind of one of those examples of where i literally stacked my eggs in kind of that basket thinking it was going to be you know, I was going to be ahead of the curve and have this new hype strain that everyone was going to want and love and be like stoked and foaming at the mouth to get. And then, uh, yeah, it was just not it. So it's kind of like just one of many like little instances that are kind of reinforced the idea that can't always go by other people's standards of what, you know, something that's going to be outstanding is and that my own standards are very often going to be completely different from what other people consider to be elite examples of cannabis. Yeah, that is interesting, man. You brought up that phenomena a little earlier about almost like mental hype or something not living up to what you expect it to be and, and how we form those perceptions before even experiencing a product based on, like you said, the brand or based on the genetics or based on the name. Like you mentioned about the lemon, you know, it's like, even something like that can inform someone's decision in a funny way. But going back to the idea of like genetics coming and going, the pie dough has been something that you've had for a while. And you told me that you kind of got lucky by getting those seeds before Canarado really kind of blew up. But I'm curious what characteristics you believe a plant needs to have to have this staying power. Man, yeah, I guess some of it is the consumer demand. I, I guess pie dough, like, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm sick of it, but it's just become something that, like, I always like to go back and reach for it. But because I've had it for so long and so many years and smoked so and dabbed so much of it, I also like, like to have other varieties now. So it's not something I'm always like dabbing every day anymore, I guess. But 
every time I go back to it, man, I still always appreciate the power and the flavor and just like what the way it stands out as just a, a hash. So basically what I what I'm looking for, I guess, that's primarily, I guess, is how much hash it yields. And then the quality. I mean, yeah, if something was only a four percent yield and it has like really amazing quality, like for example, we have these candied grapes that I really love. Uh, shout out to my homie Life of Trees for sharing that cut. It's an archive seed cross. And actually I gave it to Hunter at Hidden Forest and he grew it in his system this year and just unbelievable plant. I don't know exactly what he yielded, but it was only about a 4% yielder for me. But the flavor and the high, I think, is what makes that stand out. And that's one of those strains that I would say I did actually like give it up. So I don't have it now, but I'm basically going to grab it back at some point from Hunter just because I think that's one of those strains I would like to keep on my menu just like to have. I think it is outstanding and has that potential, even though it is only a 4% yielder. It has a really strong medicating high and the flavor is, you know, one of the better grape cross besides pie dough, I guess that I've had or great pie crosses, I guess that I've had besides pie dough that makes rosin that really has a unique and incredible flavor, I think to me. So I think, yeah, the combination of the flavor and the the power of it, it's it's a kind of harder plant to grow. It's not the easiest. And I mean, I guess nowadays when people are talking about growing for hash and like what makes a keeper, obviously it does make sense to consider how much biomass you get from the plant versus, you know, how much hash you get. And it does make sense to bring that into the conversation, like with certain strains like Gorilla Glue or GMO that are incredibly vigorous and fast. You know, you can fill a space and get, you know, an incredibly high amount of weed of Gorilla Glue or GMO of biomass. And then that biomass is going to yield you 7%. I mean, that's a win-win. And I have a strain like the Z-Cube which like, I mean, it's slow, it's hard to clone, but it gives six and a half percent. The last two runs I've had with it were six and a half percent. And for a Skittles Terp that it has is literally the best. I mean, it's almost twice what the Rainbow Belts yields. The the best Rainbow Belts I've had has been about 3.7 or 3.8%. So to have something that has a similar or better flavor to, in my opinion, and the yield six and a half percent. I mean, that's incredible. Um, the downside is, yeah, it's not a big yielding plant. It's sensitive. It seems like it's you know it's it's hard to clone. So yes, like marketing wise, you'd be better off growing something like GMO in the place of that because even though the percentage might only be a half a percent, monetarily wise, I mean you can sell the GMO for like half the price and still probably make more money. (laughs) But ultimately, I think what's going to separate for me, the keepers is not necessarily just the highest amount of money I can make off of a plant, but something that's really unique and really amazing to her profile, I guess, these days because hash and rosin so much comes down to just like how yeah how it performs on the nail i guess you could say 
so yeah, I mean, I think visually the pie dough is an anomaly because I've never seen, I mean, I've had other strains like the Z cube, you're harvesting it. It doesn't look particularly like it's going to yield as much as it does. The pie dough, if you literally brush the plant, it's like, it's like a tree that's covered with snow. It just like explodes off <laughs> almost like dust coming off of it. Just when you're, whenever you're harvesting or trimming for the fresh frozen, I mean, the heads are literally just like salt that just gets shaken off of the plant. So it's, it's crazy that you can't always see or, uh, you know, tell just from looking at, at resin or a plant, if it's going to be a good yield there or not. So I think in some cases, yeah, you really got to just do a, do a test wash. And I think handling the product, man, is such a, such a big thing too. I think a, a lot of people kind of overlook fresh frozen, how you store it and how you harvest it and how it gets handled before you process it is huge. Yeah, that definitely seems to be a big part of it is, is the handling. Lately, I've seen quite a few things uh, where people are basically freezing on a tray, for example, before even bagging it up pre-wash. So I think the handling has a lot to do with obviously how much you get and also what the quality will be beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. No question. I've had basically traditionally always most people harvest into turkey bags. And I mean, that's what I've used for most of the time. I process fresh frozen. Sometimes people bring me those vac seal, you know, food saver bags and stuff. I always hate those. It's just like annoying to deal with, I feel like, versus the turkey bags. And you get a bunch of food saver bags. And plus they're expensive too. I mean, I guess turkey bags are, it's, it's all expensive. But anyway, it's really hard to reuse either turkey bags or food saver bags once they've had fresh frozen material in them. It's pretty difficult to clean or sanitize those to be reused. So basically you have the cost of all those, you know, turkey bags a dollar a piece, you know, it adds up. And so uh, I figured out using food grade tubs, basically some free tech for anyone, using food grade restaurant fish tubs, preserves the material a lot better and uh, allows it to freeze without getting squished. Can't stack nearly quite as much as you can in, in a freezer as you could maybe with turkey bags, but it's a really nice way to like label and you know separate all the kinds in an easy organized way where you can kind of go through and see exactly what you got. If you're running through different strains, it can be really useful just as far as organization versus a bunch of turkey bags that are all over the place that are like have labels falling off or something. It's easy enough to slap a piece of tape on those bins and then take it off or just use a marker that you can rub off with some ISO. If you don't have any tape, and I've actually seen people uh, increase by like half a percent or more from using the turkey bags to using the bins. So it actually really can increase your yield on how it's uh, handled and frozen versus just being put in the bags and kind of get squished naturally. Right. I know some people freeze on dry ice and like kind of, or sorry, uh, trim and harvest like right onto like a bucket of dry ice and stuff. And I think that's pretty good. That's probably like, if you can do that, Hey, that's great. But if you can't do that, I think the bin is probably the best way. And even if you do do that, you know, once you stack the, bags in the freezer it's hard to imagine that they're not going to get a little bit 
smushed and damaged. And once you have worked with cannabis, especially, you know, fresh frozen, you realize like how fragile and how much like resin you lose, just like handling the plants. And especially like, yeah, at that point, once they're, once they're in that delicate state of being cut and ready to be frozen, the, the better you can preserve them uh, intact before they're going to get processed. I think, you know, the better your end product's going to come out. What's the usual time frame between you cutting down your fresh frozen, prepping it, and then you washing it? Um, I mean, hey, if I can do it in a couple of days, I'll do it as, you know, as fresh as possible. But I don't honestly think it's bad to have stuff stored in the freezer as long as it's stored properly. You know, like I think those bins store stuff pretty well. So as long as it's in a sealed, like kind of well-preserved container, I mean, I think it can last some months in the freezer. Um, without a degradation of quality. But that being said, I think it's the sooner the better, really, that you can get it processed. Obviously, you don't want to try to wash it before it's fully frozen and completely uh, in that frozen state. Well, cool, dude. Uh, I think this would be a good time for a smoke break. You down? Absolutely, my brother. Shout out to our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. I'll be honest, it's been pretty cool to see this wave of rosin that seems to be going worldwide with so many folks out there washing and pressing rosin. Now, all that hash gets filtered in bags to extract the rosin. You want those bags to be made of high quality nylon because you don't want anything leaching into your rosin. They also need to be precise in measurement and have undergone a rigorous quality control process. That's where Rosin Evolution comes in. They're the best at what they do, rosin bags. So if you're out there in the world pressing rosin and you like peace of mind, use the most trusted name in rosin, Rosin Evolution, and help support the podcast while saving yourself some money by using the savings code THI, the number 710. Again, THI 710 all together saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. I appreciate you listening and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. So the first time you cultivated was back at the National Park, like you said, in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It was an outdoor grow with your buddy. Like you said, you guys were you know sneaking around 2, 3 a.m., bringing soil out there, tending the plants. From then on, you moved on to Maine. You had some of the indoor cultivation experience. Then you did a little outdoor cultivation. Now you do a little mix of both. What do you feel each of them brings? And do you have a preference? Each comes with its own uh, set of challenges and uh, advantages, I guess. I mean, outdoor, obviously, you can rely on the sun and to a large extent have a opportunity to grow bigger and larger amount of plant material. So assuming you can make a good solventless product with it, monetarily wise, you might have an outdoor operation that might be worth more than the indoor, you know, if you don't have a a giant warehouse space or something. So that's one advantage of outdoor just for a smaller operation or someone that's just kind of getting into growing that's advantageous. Indoor is nice because you have a little more control over what goes into the room. You know, you a little less likely to have pests or something if you keep a clean grow and don't bring plants in from outside or from other grows or stuff. 
So it's a little easier. You have more control over the environment versus the weather. Outdoors seasons can be really good. Some seasons can be not so good. We have like the boring caterpillars that affect the outdoor. So like, yeah, some seasons, those are more destructive. Some seasons, they're less. You don't really have to deal with those kind of a pest indoors, which is really nice. You're sheltered from the elements. I think the flavor and uh, resin can develop to a maturity that maybe is more difficult in this climate out here to accomplish without having a greenhouse or a covered hoop house, which I don't have. So yeah, for me, I think right now, I guess I prefer indoor just because I think the potential that I've seen from my grow not being able to be covered outdoor. Yeah, the indoor seems like it's the most protected flavor-wise that I'm able to achieve. And the methods I'm using seems like it's producing the best flavor and the strongest effect. I think the outdoor I have is definitely really strong and has come a long way and is, you know, not far behind. I think there's other people like Hidden Forest, shout out Hidden Forest and shout out to Helios. I think both of those guys are really pushing the envelope of quality on the sun-grown resin and mean and have definitely changed my mind as far as the possibilities of what the quality can be and the flavor you can get from some of the sun-grown varieties that they can, in some cases, rival the indoor or even even be better in some cases of certain certain plants. Like, for example, sometimes the indoor resin of certain varieties might come out on the drier side and then be more cakey or something. And when you grow it outdoors, you know, it can be even way more terpy. I think their papaya is kind of like that. Seem like the papaya seems like it's kind of a drier resin indoors, but outdoors is just incredibly terpy and, yeah. That's one that I think they're they're definitely pushing the envelope with uh, with their papaya right now in terms of being as good or or better than than the best indoor out there. So it's very impressive to see. So hey, you know my mind might change, and like I said, it's it's all kind of dependent on the grower and the system. And in some cases, the grower might have a system that's producing better outdoor than they might be able to produce indoor, and or vice versa. So I have all respect to people trying to cultivate in any of those methods. And uh, yeah, it's really incredible and exciting to see how far it's come and how far it's going to keep going. Now, regarding light sources for your indoor, you're a strong believer in HPS. Yeah, absolutely. So I've always run HPS lights pretty much uh, my entire time producing hash for my garden. And I've certainly done a few washes from people that were LED grown. And I definitely think that the quality of the LED is, I don't know, I think it's something to do with the UV light, maybe and the intensity of the HPS light. And I don't know, maybe maybe it has to do something with the heat and the, the stress that the plants get getting put under. You know, I'd have to do a little more thought and research into what exactly it breaks down to but from what i've heard and people's experiences that have done some side by sides seems like the hps definitely can make a make a better quality resin head i think led can make in some cases a good quantity of hash 
I think maybe the the HPS produces a trichome that has more oil than uh, the LED light. And that's just my speculation, I guess. Just like the sun is going to produce a more oil and trichome head than, than either of those. Yeah, reason why so much of the outdoor and the greenhouse ash is so wet and terpy, I think. That's why there's just much oil inside those heads and uh it's a really stable resin i found like even you know no matter if it's a greasy outdoor resin or a more sandy outdoor resin it seems like all the resin is very stable like once you especially freeze dried once you freeze dry the resin from outdoor is always very stable like you can press and have the rosin sit at room temperature for some days up to sometimes up to a week without it kind of changing consistency. Whereas indoor can literally change within less than an hour at room temperature. I've had presses that, you know, they sat for less than an hour and you go to collect them and it's already kind of starting to cake up and it's not uh, that nice fresh press consistency anymore. Just some of those strains. So it's interesting to see the difference in the resin from what the sun produces and how it affects the consistency and the stableness of the rosin and stuff. I do find it interesting that you do think that your indoor produces, uh, if you want to call it a terpier rosin. I think, sorry, I think outdoor almost produces a more terpier rosin is what I was saying, I think. Indoor, I think the flavor is more protected. so. In some cases, your brain, the way that we associate things with taste and just like indoor and outdoor flower, just the same thing as like when you're smoking it. I mean, I think we just associate the indoor with having more flavor. But in certain cases with certain strains, yeah, I think like the papaya I was saying right. um, recently is like, I think as good or maybe even better than some of the indoor papaya I've had from you know, the better examples I've had from 710 Labs or whatever, the best batches I've had from them or, or whoever that had a, just the straight papaya. So I think outdoor is has more oil, I think, is what I was really trying to say, I guess. And I mean, in some cases, it definitely can be more terpy. I think it's more wet traditionally. Like once it's been cold cured or room temperature cured, it tends to be more wet overall than the indoor material in general, not to say one or the other couldn't be dry or wet, but just like I was saying with uh, the way that the outdoor is really stable and tends to not butter up even after some days at room temperature versus the indoor, which certain strains uh, have resin that's less stable that tends to butter up or turn to that kind of consistency uh, very quickly. So you posed this question to me earlier, and it wasn't really a question. It was more of a statement. It's like, what makes the resin good? We've talked about light source, for example. What has happened with your cultivation in regards to what's happening beneath the plant? I guess for me, I think that it definitely has has to do also with like, yeah, what you feed the plants as well and like the size of your pots. I mean, there's there's a lot of things just like with flour. You know, I think if you grow really big pots of organic soil indoors, it can be hard to have the nutrients 
you know, in some cases get, get all used up by the flower. So the flower, even though it's organic, you know, you think it's going to be really clean and like amazing smoke, you know, it might actually like burn less clean than some rock wool stuff that people are able to get to like eat through everything and come out, you know, yeah, the ash might be like whiter on the rock wool stuff and it might even taste better just because maybe there's some bone meal left over in the organic stuff that didn't get grown through it didn't get chewed through so it's kind of like harsh you know not the best burning stuff so i mean it's really kind of the application i guess and i mean i'm still figuring that out i use you know just like a lightly fertilized soil and i use uh biobiz nutrients which is mostly just beet molasses and sea kelp and some other like plant extract kind of additives and stuff i use a little bat guano and um, i do some plant compost teas from dragonfly earth medicine i just started incorporating recently so yeah honestly i'm just trying to do like a more kind of natural approach i guess to like a soilless type of growing versus like a cocoa or rock wool just feeding with salts i definitely feel like the hash comes out better from using those type of nutrients and growing in a soilless mix or like a soil. I have a friend that grows in a soil mix, just like a water-only soil mix. And every time I've done any washes from him, uh, his stuff comes out just incredibly terpy. The color is, you know, some of the best from anyone I've washed for. So I really do think there's something to be said about growing with soil and, you know, trying to just use more organic fertilizer methods for producing a better resin indoors and and outdoors really i think there is a lot to it it comes down to the light nutrients water just like i was saying to my friend recently um one of the hardest parts i think of growing for flour is the drying and curing process and i think you could even argue is the most difficult or hardest part of the process to get right I mean, you can literally do everything else right in the growing process. You can literally be the best grower in the world and do every other part of your process from seed to harvest right. And if you don't have your drying room set up or you don't know how to dry or cure in a way that's going to have your stuff put off an amazing smell without having to crack into the bud or not be too dry or not too wet. Yeah, man, I think that's (laughs) one of the hardest things to, to get just right. And I think people are still trying to figure out how to perfect it. And I mean, I know there's people have come up with kind of established, accepted methods, I guess, that that work and are are being used by the farms and stuff. I think we're all just still trying to figure out the best way to do this and how to make the best product we can. And um, I think that's what it comes down to. Like, I'm just still learning and trying to... uh, figure out what the best way is to apply these things and get to get the best product I can and whatever method is going to get me that best quality. I'm going to try to figure out what that is. Do you feel like there's ever a mastering of that or will there always be growth? I think, man, for, for indoors, it's, it's hard. It's, it's a little different than outdoors. I mean, I don't know. I think it's possible to maybe do a more like living soil or like no-till grow indoors and have it be really uh, amazing and function on a high level. I just think it's also like a lot more difficult 
people have figured out how to crop steer and to, you know, fill rooms and grow plants really efficiently with soilless and uh, rock wool, cocoa kind of methods. So that's primarily like what we've seen people really putting a lot of money and uh, effort into, into working on it. I mean, not to say that the other can't have some success, but I really do believe that like that kind of like living soil kind of methods and like kind of it's best for outdoor greenhouse. I think it's just hard to have that kind of a system function that I've seen, I guess, where it's producing a a superior quality product. I think it's possible, but I think, yeah, trying to apply and incorporate those techniques in a, in a greenhouse or outdoor is going to give you the most success. And kind of trying to figure out a hybrid of, in my opinion, yeah, like a water only mix or like a lightly kind of fed organic soil or soilless mix in a, in a smaller size container, I think, in my opinion, is going to be the best quality that I've seen from it from an indoor perspective. Now, regarding your indoor space, you said that based on the amount of space you have, you don't feel like a lot of people would pheno hunt within that, but that you do because you like kind of staying ahead of things. How complicated is that with not having a lot of space? Yeah, man, it's funny. Uh, it's it's definitely not easy. Um, I guess I might have mentioned earlier, I don't really keep moms. So I guess it's just having a limited veg space and trying to retain and propagate the plants that make sense to continually have. and. Um, yeah, having a limited grow space definitely uh, makes it difficult to try to dedicate it to, to finding new things and continuing to produce enough of the quantity of what people want of the established ones like Pido. I'm definitely, I mean, I guess it's part of it comes down to I just love finding new varieties and part of the excitement of growing and making hash is trying to find new kinds that I want to try and share with people and bring to market and hopefully become established kinds that, that I like and want to grow for years to come. Unfortunately, yeah, it's been difficult for me to find stuff that I place on the level of pie dough that I want to grow and keep for five years or something and have be a part of my brand and a part of my garden for that long. I guess as times change and tastes change, it is something to say about the ones that, that do stick around and are, are still considered the best uh, years later. You know, unfortunately, that main super skunk is uh, extinct, no longer with us. But yeah, man, that was uh, that was stuff that, that had that staying power too. Yeah, shout out to Chris, Indoor Plant Kingdom, for keeping it alive as long as he did and sharing that that flower and that hash with me and and uh and my friends for all the years that he did because uh yeah it was definitely some really special stuff it had a had a psychedelic mind bending high and um yeah flavor that was very unique unlike anything else i've ever had we're really grateful that i was able to experience some of these unique kinds that were from seeds that i acquired or uh you know, had a, had a friend grow that I was able to uh, share. So th- things like that, those kinds that were really special and were found by us and 
propagated and kept around for so many years that have that staying power that really keeps the hunger for the hunt going and makes me feel like it's worth sacrificing the space that otherwise most people would probably not be doing in my position. Because yeah, it's, it's difficult when you have a room with 60 plants and they're all have different growth patterns, different water needs, different nutrient needs. Some of them stretch, some of them don't stretch. It's a lot easier to grow a handful of different kinds or you know a few clones than just continually trying to, to, to do pheno hunts. So eventually I'm hoping to narrow it down, but you know, for now I'll keep keep pheno hunting and trying to retain the best and keep cracking seeds because that's what I want to see other people do. So I'm gonna keep doing it. Do you think that's also just part of the hash world now, maybe even the cannabis world? basically having to have something different or have something new. You, when we were taking the smoke break, we're mentioning how people, you know, nowadays, for example, maybe not regards to hash in particular, but you know, it's like they want 10 flavors, including yourself. You're like, I like to have, you know, 10 flavors at hand and I like them all to be like super fire. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think uh, I've always kind of like looked at things like that. I've always kind of like searched the seed banks or like, yeah, I guess been in touch with people that have kind of like put me on to certain breeders. Like early on, I guess, uh, you know, shout out to Melting Pot Farm. You know, he was the first person that told me about archive seeds, first person that told me about Canarado. And um, yeah, he probably knew about them just from being on the forums and, you know, reading posts from the doctor and from Canarado back then before they were even like a real established company. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool to see how it's all developed. And I think for everyone, there is more variety now, like that people can, you know, you can order clones a lot easier. You know, there's like Hortman's or whatever, we can order any of the most cutting edge, like RS11 or you know, any any gelato or any of these cuts you want, you know, they range from like a couple hundred to a couple thousand dollars, I guess, depending on how new and in demand it is. But it seems like it's a lot easier to get clones. Seems like people get breeder clones or have connections to get clones a lot easier. It used to be people didn't give out clones so easily. It used to be like you had to earn it. Unless, I mean, on the forums, maybe it was a little different among some people. But even then, I mean... With a lot of the things, yeah, you people didn't just give it out. You had to have some some reason why you were going to get it. You had to be either proven as a really good grower or, uh, yeah, in a lot of cases, it was a stranger sending a stranger a clone. The only connection they had was through chatting or connecting over the internet on these forums and stuff. So, you know, yeah, it was hard to always... <laughs> judge versus someone versus yeah only all you had to go on was just like their presence on there you didn't know you know these people didn't know each other things have changed a lot and i think yes it is still more than ever to answer your question more than ever important for people to kind of try to stay on the cutting edge and yeah do their research and see what's going to produce what they want, I guess, or just be something different than what everyone else has already in their area. It's easy to kind of copy and paste what's been successful for one person. And, you know, in some cases, it's hard to resist that urge for some people. But I guess I would encourage people to try to 
yeah, even even if it's the longer, harder road that sometimes might not yield results right away. You know, if you can find something that's not as known or not the same thing that everyone else has, you know, yeah, it can really help propel you forward and get people to notice or uh, pay attention to what you're doing. I would encourage people to keep finding things that are new and unique and uh, bringing them to market. And the only way you can do that is with growing seeds, going the hard way. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you hanging out so long with me. I'll start winding this down, shooting some questions kind of all over the place. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is how you go about loading your hash before you press it into rosin because uh, you use a tech that's a little bit different than maybe some others. Um, Yeah, man. So I like to pre-grease my hash. So basically just heat up the rosin plates. And, you know, as they're heating up, I just take the loose hash in a piece of parchment that's folded, just kind of put it up against the plates and then flip it over, do that a couple times until it's a nice kind of like pressed fruit roll up kind of flat hash. And then I take that and kind of make a little snake with that and then make patties with that that basically get put in, you know, double bag. And then um, I actually do a kind of a closed press. So when I do the bag, a lot of people do like the kind of flow on the paper that's just like open and it looks really awesome visually. But once you're done and have pressed the stuff, you kind of have to have some way of covering it up and not having dust or contaminant, you know, get on the rosin before you can collect it. So I've done, I was first doing a directional flow uh, with like a pouch that my buddy showed me um, where I was cutting the parchment and making a little pouch of the parchment that my rosin bag would go into and then would direct the flow away from the plates towards the front. So I didn't need to fold the sides and like worry about any of the rosin going out of the sides. But the problem with that is, you know, it just was another piece of paper that you had to kind of unfold and try to collect some rosin from because inevitably some of the rosin from your press is going to be stuck inside that other paper pouch rather than just on your parchment paper. So I've developed a way that basically I just take my piece of paper, which is just pre-folded rosin evolution, heavy duty paper, eight by 16, I think it is. And I just fold that on both sides. So the rosin has nowhere to go except forward off of the plates. And then the bags just press into the closed paper, basically. And I fold the bottom. So instead of it flowing out of the bottom, it kind of just all collects into a pouch that the paper makes. And I can quickly just open it, take the bags out, close it, put it on a cooling pad. And then it's in a state where it can be done repeatedly. And the rosin is contained in the paper at that point where it's not open to the air or uh, getting disturbed until it's ready to collect, basically. So it's nice. I see some people doing presses where they literally like press and it all drips out onto parchment paper on the ground or below the press. They just continually load parchment and just keep pressing and dripping hot rosin onto the rosin they just press. And I'm like, man got to really consider like yeah you don't you don't want to just press hot rosin onto your rosin that's already pressed if you have a blowout i mean yeah if you have any issues not a not a great technique so anyway i i for me it works really well and 
I like it. It allows me to process from 20 grams in a press, 40 grams or so in a press. And it's really nice to have that versatility. So 40 is kind of your upper threshold? Yeah, usually don't do much more than that. About 20 grams in a bag, maximum double bag. And the size of the bags, because people like to know these details. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do the 37 bag for the first wrap that the patty gets into, and then the 91 for the second, uh, sorry, 90 micron for the second bag. Okay, cool. And then after you're pressing, we were joking about this earlier, about the cold cure. You're like props to anybody who has 30 days to do that, but uh, what's your tech? Um, I usually just kind of do like room temperature or below. Nothing too special, I guess. I don't know if I think it's necessary to do it super cold. I guess um, it's it can can kind of be strain dependent too, as far as like what your results are. Um, I found some strains need like a little bit of a low heat added sometimes to get it to be a little bit more wet. Some strains come out really dry. So I think if you have like a toaster oven or a vacuum oven, you can put at a low temperature, like around 90 to 95 degrees. That can sometimes help with stuff that's like on the drier side, help get it a little bit more wet. You can whip it up. I think also, yeah, just really whipping stuff. Sometimes stuff is really dry initially where it's like almost like when you're making cookies or something. And I think it's just you got to homogenize the molecules and kind of break up the drier stuff. And sometimes releases like the juice or the oil inside gets stuff to be more wet. So I've had kinds where they were like pretty dry, you know, put it in at 90 degrees, whip it up a bit and definitely gets it a lot more wet. It's a nice little technique for the drier stuff. Cool. You said that sometimes you can find yourself making too many changes at once in your garden. Do you find that to be a detriment at times? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just want to try to do the best thing you can. And I mean, sometimes it's like, as they say, like, if it's not broke, like, don't fix it. But also, you know, sometimes the temptation to try one or more things. And, you know, yeah, I think, I guess I would just say if people are going to try to do something new, whether it's in the hash or their garden or whatever, try to do like, if you're trying to, you know, measure something, if it works or not, or does better, like, yeah, try to make one change rather than making more than one because yeah sometimes when you make multiple changes yeah it's hard to identify which was the positive change or the one that that mattered in that case so yeah sometimes the desire to just like continually push the envelope or do things better can backfire in that case where you uh do too many things and you don't know what the thing was that that made it better that time yeah fair i think that's a good point you and many others have mentioned that being a farmer is a lot of work. And you told me that there's been times that you wanted to quit facing a multitude of problems. What keeps you going? Just like the love of the plant, man. And like, yeah, I love, love growing and smoking and just having some really nice rosin and hash, man, I guess is what it comes down to for a while. It was about more having the flower um, and trying to have the best flower that I could and just like sharing that with my people. And it's been really cool to see, yeah, the doors and uh, opportunities and just connections that are, that are made just with the plant. So I think, yeah, ultimately 
the plant is a, is a really special plant. And like, yeah, I mean, anytime I've felt like that, wanting to not do it anymore, I mean, it's just like, it's just a frustration, I guess, of, uh, yeah, not doing it better and not doing it, not doing, not having it be better. And that's just the frustrations of being a farmer and like that, not, yeah, when you're kind of a perfectionist and you always want it to be perfect and always want it to be the best and then it wasn't for whatever reason, then yeah, it can really uh, make you not feel good about yourself. So sometimes things are out of your hands and, you know, you have mechanical failures or bugs or, uh, you know, mold happens. Yeah, it's like anything can happen and uh, you can have devastating losses in this business. And uh, yeah, you got to definitely have something to keep that keeps you going because otherwise, yeah, if it's just money and you have a big loss or a big setback or um, yeah, you got to trash material and stuff, sometimes, yeah, it does make most people would want to quit. I think I'm just grateful for the opportunity to uh, exist in the community and think it's my duty to try to do my best to bring a product to market that's going to be outstanding and try to stay on the cutting edge of things in terms of what I have and try to be a trendsetter for Maine. And we're all just stewards of the plants. Anyone that, that grows it really, I guess it's like, so it's up, up to us to represent it in the best possible way. And yeah, I think it's not always easy to do that, but it's up to us to do our best to do that always and, and strive to improve and um, yeah, represent it the best we can. How do you see the East Coast hash scene developing? I think it's really come a long way in the last five years or so. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's still also just in its infancy. I mean, you have New York and Massachusetts still kind of starting to come online more. You have Florida. I think Maine has kind of had the opportunity, I guess, to exist largely as the the biggest kind of medical state on the East Coast for a while. But as these other states get more established and have more people growing there and kind of pushing the envelope, be interesting to see. I think this has a lot more potential to grow. I guess I just like would hope to see more focus on quality. I think one thing we're going to see going forward is quality may or may not get better but i think people are going to keep producing more to the point where i guess yes what what else how else are you going to set yourself aside at a certain point if the market becomes so saturated um, with choices i guess i feel like quality is going to be the only thing that at the end of the day is going to keep the small businesses able to survive if they can at all it'd be interesting to see as more bigger operations come in and just the market, yeah, what, what happens with everything. For sure. It'll be super interesting to see how it all plays out. Speaking of quality, your favorite East Coast hash brand outside of Maker Raw? Hidden Forest Farms, 100%. That's my homie, Hunter. Shout out Hunter and Matt, Aiden at Hidden Forest. Those are my homies for 10 plus years now. And uh, yeah. Also, Helios, I'm going to give them an honorable mention. They've definitely come incredibly in the last couple of years. Got to also shout out my homie Seymour Terps. 
he's doing as far as like indoor and main and high street farm. Uh, those are a couple guys that are doing some really good indoor that I really enjoy. Another brand I've been enjoying a lot recently is Third Shift Resin. I uh, did a collab with those guys and uh, they got some incredible stuff they're working with. Really nice Sunday driver cut that they won the Culture Club Best Full Melt with. And uh, yeah, I got some really nice stuff. So shout out to them. Yeah, Hazy Hill Farm had some really incredible entries for their last Culture Cup. Definitely want to shout out to, uh, yeah, especially Hidden Forests and Helios for uh, doing the natural approach to, to the growing with the like living soil and really uh, trying to be conscious of what they're using and the materials and really uh, having sustainable practices. And uh, yeah, it's really inspiring and been, been great to see see them pushing the envelope for the outdoor hash and just the hash in general in Maine. Definitely incredible to see how far it's come and excited to see how far it's going to go. Cool. Me too. That'd be exciting to see. If you had to name three of the hash makers that you feel have been most influential to you, who would they be? Well, probably Grape God would have to be number one. Cuban Grower, probably be number two. And Matt Rise, absolutely, number three. Got to gotta shout out Matt Rise because, yeah, I mean, when I was first getting into washing, just reading on those forums and uh, about the ice oil and about doing ice water hash with fresh frozen and stuff, that was some of the first information that was out there available to the public and was kind of where I first had a resource to go to from the roll it up ice wax threads that Matt Rise created. So yeah, got a shout out to him, Cuban grower, just like for pushing the solventless movement and uh, winning all those cannabis cups with the dry sift. I mean, yeah, that was an incredible accomplishment and uh, definitely like made me feel like solventless was the future and was going to command a higher price than any of the BHO stuff. It was just mind blowing to me, like the following he had, and the, uh, the price he was commanding for his product at the time when I was first getting exposed to the solventless stuff. And yeah, great God, obviously with the cookies and cream and the orange cream, which, yeah, I mean, that orange cream still to this day was, and is some of the best ice water hash I ever had. And yeah, man, if I could still get, three gram buckets for $375 or 400 <laughs> I'd happily, happily pay to get some of those right now because, uh, yeah, man, still some of the best orange terps and some of the best tasting and melting smoking hash uh, I've ever had. So got to pay respect to Grape God. Cool. Well, final question. Who would you like to hear from on the podcast? I'd love to hear a Hidden Forest on there. I don't know if you guys got him on. I know you guys talked to him some uh, with Helios. So yeah, I'd love to hear him on there. High Street is really good right now. They've been doing some really good work. Hazy Hill is another one. Um, they've been in the market for a long time. He's, he's an old school cannabis guy from Maine. Dave over there at Hazy Hill. He's definitely, uh, you know, someone who's who's been in the scene here for a long time and has uh, good experience and good knowledge of this. Oh, uh, I mean, I guess they don't make hash, but I was going to say the people under the stairs, genetics guy, Chef Row. 
Um, I think he'd be a really cool guy to have on just in terms of genetics and uh, breeding East Coast. I mean, he's someone who is very active in the forums and uh, he's since like moved up here. And um, yeah, just a very knowledgeable, experienced and uh, old school character from from this area, from from Massachusetts. And, you know, knew it would just be be cool to talk to like a New England kind of seed breeder that's been in it since the forum days and uh you know yeah i think he would have a lot of interesting things to contribute and yeah I, I would listen to it i'd be interested to what he would have to say who is this again people under the stairs genetics is his account and i think his his handle that i knew was chef i don't i don't know him by any other name well cool man i appreciate the suggestions it's always cool to you know hear of new people that would be interesting to speak to but I really appreciate you hanging out for a long time and, and chit-chatting. And like I said, taking multiple times to talk. Uh, it's been cool getting to know you. Anything else that you want to say before we sign off? No, man. Just wanted to thank you so much for having me on here. Really appreciate you reaching out and the interest and in what I have to say and uh, contribute for the culture and the history of the scene up here for hash cannabis in New England and, uh, I'm just grateful and uh, really appreciative to have been a part of this. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to share. Of course, man. Thank you. Again, you can follow Tucker at Mega Raw Melts on Instagram. That's at Mega Raw underscore Melts. For those of you still with us, we appreciate you hanging out and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.